you should start thinking of your brand on day one because you need a compass in order to navigate successfully all the things you need to be doing that doesn't mean that you can't iterate and pivot on what you're doing but you need that compass from the beginning to have a clear sense of your direction what kind of products that you would want to offer welcome to grounded content the podcast where advertising marketing and content get real as always we talk about ideas tactics ethics and philosophy today i'll be talking about brand with jeffrey madoff it's hard to know where to begin to introduce him He's the author of a new book, Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. He's seen success as a fashion designer, as a commercial director, working with clients like Ralph Lauren and Victoria's Secret. He's a playwright, and he's an associate professor at the New School. Before we start the interview, I want to thank Joe Polish, the master connector, for introducing us. So, Jeffrey Madoff, thank you for joining us. I know that you teach a class at the new school. And in fact, I've, I've been able to audit a session or two and you interview people who have creative careers. Who do you think is the most interesting conversation or what do you think is the most interesting conversation you've had in that class? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on Marian. Uh, it's, it's great to be talking to you. You know, I'm asked that question and this is not a dodge, but I try to make each week, my favorite guest, <laughs> you know, because I want to be present for the guests, present for the students and the audience. And I honestly don't have a favorite because there have been so many people from such disparate points in their career and what they're pursuing. Uh, and it's all interesting because I fortunately get really good people who are willing to talk in a candid way, in a very open and vulnerable way about what they're doing. So just so that the audience will be duly impressed, can you throw out some of the big names that have shown up in your class? Damon John of Shark Tank fame has been in my class. Alan Miller, who is a two-time Pulitzer Prize winning journalist who started the News Literacy Project, which is a, a fantastic and important organization. Supermodel and entrepreneur Kathy Ireland, along with supermodel Carly Kloss. And then I've had Moral Porcini, who's the head of innovation for PepsiCo, who's a fascinating guy talking about design, designers, uh, you know, many different designers. Brandon Maxwell, who is one of the most lauded women's wear, contemporary women's wear designers now, and has won, I think, two CFDA awards. And Vanessa Friedman from the New York Times, I mean, a number of people. And Michael Arad, who designed the 9 11 memorial. You know, I have, uh, met and had the good fortune to talk to a lot of really interesting people. I actually feel a little bit on the spot right now because I know you are such an experienced and great interviewer of creatives that now I'm thinking about what question I ask and whether you're going to judge me. But, but uh, And you're not even smiling at that. You're giving me that cold, hard stare. That's yeah. that judgmental look. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it just I just crumbled. Okay, so in terms of grounded content, let's start at the beginning. What, what does brand mean? What is brand? Brand comes from the Norse term brandor. And that meant to burn and so if really? you think back yeah if you think back to livestock you know why do you brand a cow or a horse it's to show ownership 
And so when you look back at the history of brands as we know them, uh, it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution that brands started happening because when things got shipped out of the village and to a wider market, so they were going someplace, being transported someplace, a brand was put on the, sh on the shipping crate to show ownership as to whose goods it were. And from that, there's different kinds of things that sprung, but the brand first and foremost was a sign of ownership. That's and so the, interesting, that history. I hadn't, I, it seems so obvious now that you say it, but I had no idea of that. Yeah, well, it's funny, you know, cause I think about when I, when I was younger uh, and I was in high school, I was on the wrestling team. And so, you know, you had letter jackets and letter sweaters and it was only sports teams when you think back you know, to the 60s, it was sports teams that had the logos on the outside. Right. Now, if you're wearing Ralph Lauren or Gucci or Prada or Armani or anything else, people put their logos on the outside. And the function is kind of the same. You become a part of something, right? You know, in the fashion world, you become a part of something. In the right. computer world, Apple having a glowing Apple on the lid of their laptop, you know, that's a brand. And I'm just wondering who's owning who at this point. I conspicuously avoid logos on my clothes. Do you really? Yeah. You know, if I'm going to be a billboard, you'll have to pay me. Because I was thinking about, you know, you talk about this idea of identity. And I know in your book, I confess, I haven't finished it yet. I'm a slow reader, but it's, it's a great book, very readable, very easy to digest. But in the beginning, you talk about Ralph Lauren, the way he thinks about a clothing line and the way there's sort of a personality to that. Could you explain that, how that fits into this idea? It was interesting. Ralph's muse has always been the movies. When he was a kid, and I've worked with Ralph for 35 years, and uh, he would go and just get lost in the movie theater and just be totally hypnotized by the films and the stars that he saw, like Cary Grant and Fred Astaire and Gary Cooper and these people. When he wanted to buy clothes that looked like those clothes in the movies, he couldn't find them anyplace. And he started off designing ties and they made, he made them thicker, you know, wider, I should say. And that was his distinctive difference in what he did. And he always was designing things that were inspired by that kind of glamour and Hollywood, whether they be Westerns or whether they be sophisticated comedies or romance or whatever. And I at one point said to him, because I did his Lifetime Achievement Award that was shown at Lincoln Center, and Audrey Hepburn gave him the award. And I got to meet Audrey Hepburn, which was, she was as charming and beautiful as you would think she would be. I mean, she was That's so great. cool. And I said to Ralph, how have you been able to keep your finger on the pulse of the consumer for so long? And he said, well, I know what the consumer wants because I am the consumer. And I thought that was really fascinating. So he's not trying to second guess who's going to like stuff. Right. You know, and by the way, you mentioned interviewing. Yeah. It's kind of the same thing as he's a proxy for his consumer. And if he thinks he likes it, the consumer is going to like it. And he's been proven right so far. I think an interview, a good interview is uh, a good conversation. And if the subject and the interviewer are engaged, you know, it's the same thing. You right. know, you're putting yourself having an essentially an empathic response with your consumer. Right. Are they going to like this? 
you know, is is this going to relate to them? And then you don't even have to ask yourself that question anymore because you sort of function on that instinct. And creating a brand is, is that, what is my customer going to want? You know, and what's the emotional tie to them? And that's critical to a brand. So you were talking about this idea that the, you know, when you're building a brand in the example there, he is the customer he gets what the customer wants but with many brands the you know the marketing department or the you know the vp of marketing or the cmo or whoever those people are that are making these decisions that affect what the brand looks like and sounds like are very different from the customers how does that work well it usually doesn't and what i mean by that is although apple is a you know largest company in the world uh it started with a singular vision and Steve Jobs, his true genius was being a brand steward. And he introduced this whole idea of personal technology because before Apple and the early, uh, you know, PCs from IBM and uh, that there was no identity for these things. And, Jobs created an identity and a brand which reflected his aesthetic. Apple never originated a product. There's no thing that they introduced that hadn't been introduced by another tech company before, electronics company before. But what he did is had a certain level of aesthetic that none of these other companies had and a savvy about user experience that none of these companies ever had. And so he established this bond with the consumer through really cool design, really simple user interface, and created a brand out of an appliance, basically. And that was brilliant. And although he's now been gone for, I don't know how long now, my sense of time is awful. But, uh, you know, that set the cornerstone philosophy for Apple. And it's very clear without seeing a logo even, what an Apple product is. So that's, that's creating a brand and no, and no matter how large you get, you stay consistent to that vision. Walt Disney's another example. He did that. You, you beat me to the punch. I was going to say, what are some other examples in different categories that you think are really strong brands? Well, well created. So, you know, we'll go into different businesses uh, and, and, I'll, and I'll point up an essential distinction too. The reason Apple is where it is now, and, uh, you know, we're both old enough to remember that Apple was often on the brink of not staying in business, you know, and uh, like Amazon, actually. But, uh, you know, what Apple did is stick to their commitment and built a brand and that asset becomes the most valuable thing that they have. So Walt Disney who created an astounding brand and think of the audacity of it starts with Disneyland, right? And then it's Disney world because Disneyland's not enough. It's Disney world, you know, and uh, Disney was a brilliant brand architect uh, and has stayed true to that vision. And you always have to think about it, about what they're selling. And so, you know, Apple selling cool hip technology. Disney is, is selling wholesome family entertainment. Right. 
you know, so whether they have their streaming services, which is their main revenue source at this point, because the parks are closed due to COVID, uh, it's still all Disney. It's wholesome family entertainment. Right. And you look at cars, you know, so you look at a BMW, the ultimate driving machine. And, you know, they've had that brand of that, you know, the precision German engineering, which is also part of the halo effect that Mercedes has, you know, so whether you're, it's a car company, uh, an electronics company, a, a vacation destination, those things all have brand attributes and the top ones in any category go to like in clothing if you talk about ralph lauren or you talk about prada or gucci you know you're talking about brands that resonate with a significant part of the consumer public nike's another amazing brand right, right. well so nike's a great example we talked about or you talked about aesthetic of a brand, what are the other elements that go into it? Obviously, Nike, a lot of it is their sort of uh, almost political stance on things. But that's recent. That used to be a taboo area in right. business. People would not make any kind of political leaning in one direction or the other because they thought that, you know, why should I alienate half our market? Nike did the commercial with Colin Kaepernick. And initially, they took a huge amount of criticism. Their stock dropped 20%. People, you know, fools, but people were, my, my values are coming through now, you know, were burning their shoes, you know, and protesting against Nike. Uh, not even really understanding why Kaepernick took a knee, as a matter of fact. That, that aside, it riled a lot of people and had an impact on Nike's business. Now, before I tell you the outcome of that, around the same time, since ads on the cutting edge were becoming a bit more political, Airbnb was talking about inclusion while immigrants were being restricted from our borders and families were being separated. So Airbnb made a statement. So Pepsi decided to make a statement. Only they're a huge corporation that really it's questionable if they have, you know, the capacity to reflect on the messaging they're putting out there. And by the way, you know, Nike's a huge corporation too, but they right. did have that. So they put out the commercial with Kendall Jenner, if you remember that, where there's a demonstration going on and allegedly some of the poses were uh, appropriated from the Black Lives Matter demonstration. Right. But what they did was so staggeringly lame that, uh, you know, it blew up on social media. And so this commercial where they spent tens of millions of dollars between her fees, media time, production time, and all of that was pulled and killed within 24 hours. And do you think it, it was pulled because it was so clearly inauthentic or because it was political? Uh, because it blew up on social media and they were so universally criticized for being so trying to pander, but being so lame that that's why, and it was hurting their image. So now we go back to Nike. Nike, and you can bet that they had a lot of people around a big table in a conference room having a risk assessment meeting, but what they did is stick with Kaepernick. And they continued to run the commercials. As a matter of fact, brought him back into another commercial 
And what they showed was that our values, our principles are for real. We authentically believe this, whether they do or not, you know, but that we authentically believe this because if they would have pulled that, uh, their credibility would have been gone. So if it's a just do it culture, and that it believes in the diversity of athleticism and athletic excellence, then you do not censure that kind of expression. And if they would have, it would have damaged the credibility of the brand. And when you damage the credibility of your brand, you stand to lose a fortune. I mean, look what happened with Uber. You know, there was this public image of Uber until it came out, how badly they treated employees, how oftentimes riders were cheated on rates, all of that stuff. And there's still, I mean, COVID hasn't helped anybody in that world, but even before COVID, they were still neck deep in controversy just on the way people were treated within the company. And that dissonance with what their pitch was, uh, and that as a result being inauthentic, and as a result of that losing credibility, they lost a tremendous amount of market share. So it's interesting, it happens in all kinds of businesses and the brand is a really important asset for a company and you have to protect the credibility of it. So let's talk about that. What are the elements? There's credibility element, there's an aesthetic. What are the other things that make up a brand? An emotional connection, okay? So an emotional connection is, is really critical. I'll tell you what, what I mean by that. I'll give you a philosophical and then a, a, an actual example. Perfect. Uh, so the philosophical example is, because I did a lot of research into what a brand is, and, and you know I've worked with many global brands. And I looked at the crucifix. And the crucifix, like the Nike swoosh, right. is a highly recognized logo. And when you look at religion, and this is not to be sacrilegious at all, this is a, an observation. When you look at the tenets of a religion, a symbol, okay, the crucifix, that's the swoosh, right? Then you have to have a story. And what is the story about it? And that story has to be familiar and constantly reinforced. And that story has to create an emotional connection with the consumer or the congregation. And there's a promise involved. So when you're doing advertising, if you say, you know, American Express accepted everywhere, then you better be accepted everywhere. And that's your promise to the consumer. You have a very clear idea. If you break it down in its components of the symbol, the story, the emotional connection, and to live happily ever after, that is true for all brands. So think about emotional connection with computers. Who's excited if they buy a Dell or a Lenovo? Very good computers, arguably as good or not better than Apple in terms of value for the dollar spent right. and the capabilities. But Apple is a tribe. There's not a Dell tribe. Nobody cares. There's not a Lenovo tribe. Nobody cares. But Apple, you buy into their whole ecosystem or their whole belief system. People are attached to their Apple products because there is a story to Apple and a feeling about Apple that connects. When a new phone is launched by Apple, 
two or three nights before you would see people lined up around the block, sleeping outside to get that new iPhone. Right. You know, I think of whatever that religious ritual is, where they're like hitting themselves with the thorns as they're going through the streets, you know, uh, it's kind of like that. You're going through this punishment to get your reward. I would be willing to bet that everybody in that line already had a functioning phone. Wait a couple of days. You, know, you, right, don't, right. you don't have to sleep on the sidewalk. You really don't. Part that's that the bond, right? That, that's right. That, that depth of that bond. That's the congregation, the yeah. consumers. You said there's a symbol, there's a story, there's a promise. Are there other elements? Yeah, that emotional connection. Okay. You know, that emotional connection. And it's, a, it's an ongoing narrative. Nike came up with the brilliant slogan, just do it. And although they have tried to change that, they've always gone back because they haven't been able to do any better. And, and it's great, you know, because it's, has, so yes, yeah, it's, it has meaning outside of Nike, right? I mean, it's just, you know, just do it. I mean, that's amazing. And the interesting thing is that their main competitor, although Nike's more than twice as large, uh, is Under Armour. And Under Armour's saying was, we will. And so what was really fascinating is if they place themselves subservient to Nike, because Nike issues the command, just do it. And they said, we will. So it's really fascinating because there are a lot of aspects to it. And I, I know I'm jumping around a lot in this, but I think it's such a fascinating area because, you know, brands are embedded in our geography. You know, just like you see the crucifix on the top of a church, you see the golden arches and you know it's McDonald's. You know, so there are these signposts, these visual signposts. You know, Nike doesn't even put their name under the swoosh anymore. Do you know how much it costs them to get to that position where they don't even have to put their name there? So thinking about this idea that they are everywhere and they have such a tremendous impact on our landscape physically, but also culturally, where do you think the responsibility sits as you build a brand in terms of its impact on the culture? And I'm not quite clear what you mean. You know, somebody like Patagonia, right? They are known for taking a real stand. And one of the things I like to think about on this podcast is not just what's effective, but where do those of us in these businesses, whether it's marketing or branding or advertising, where's the line between our obligation to our, our client and to our community and society as large? They have such an outsized influence on our culture. What, if any, is their responsibility to society? I mean, that's a really interesting question. I can tell you what I respect. I can't claim to say that because I don't believe it's their responsibility. You know, they're a business. There are some businesses, and you mentioned the best example, Patagonia. When Yvonne Chouinard started Patagonia, he was a rock climber, you know, and he was designing things, not unlike Ralph Lauren, things that would make it better. And his consciousness was such, uh, Vincent Stanley, who was uh, Chouinard's nephew, who kind of started with the company at the beginning of the company. He did my class, and he was fascinating to talk to because... They walk the walk, they talk the talk, they put their money where their beliefs are. I have 
so much respect for the way that company is run. And they don't, they don't, to my knowledge, put a whole bunch of people around the table and do a risk assessment. I don't know of, of other large companies, because they're a billion dollar company, but I don't know other large companies that function with that sense, and I'm sure there are, I just don't happen to know them, that function with that sense of social responsibility with what you're talking about. So companies like that, uh, I respect tremendously because they are authentic in terms of their commitments to what they're doing. Right. So I guess I think of another one maybe as Ben and Jerry's, although they've, yeah, been, yeah. they've been bought out. So what about alcohol brands, right? What they sell is this idea that, you know, like beer, for example, the chicks will love you, you'll be stronger, happier, uh, and pretty much none of those things are related directly to alcohol use. <laughs> I mean, uh, so do you think, it sounds like you said initially there is no obligation as a brand builder to think about how what you build affects the culture. You think that's, do you think there's a line, any line there? Or do you just think if you're a business, your obligation is to build the business at whatever cost to society? Well, first of all, I want to draw a distinction. We're talking about the oughts and the shoulds. Do I think a company should? Yes, that's a moral imperative, a should. But, uh, you know, I also think to be realistic about how most businesses function, it's about the bottom line. So when you have that kind of authenticity, and even though Ben and Jerry, uh, you know, the company was sold, their values still permeate. They use their platform for what they believe is the social good, which I respect tremendously. Right. So, uh, and I, you know, I believe them more than I believe Nike. But, you know, the point is whether it's by virtue of the asset that Nike has built through their brand, you know, they still use sweatshops in China to make their shoes. So where do you draw the line? And where do we as consumers draw the line? Because you don't know where all the components are made at the community. Apple uses sweatshops. They have stuff uh, done at Foxconn, which is a huge factory that has you know, apparently a pretty high suicide rate. It's awful. So where do you draw the line? What if the landlord who they rent from supports political causes that you don't like? But I also think that a critical distinction too is if you lie about it. There are more and more companies are trying to position themselves as having a certain moral compass. A lot of times it's bullshit. You know, they're, they'll set up, uh, the, if they're a big company, they'll have a division of philanthropy. And it is used as much for its press release as it is for actually doing something significant. It sounds like pragmatically speaking, just as someone building a brand, pulling back from this sort of greater philosophy, consistency maybe is a better word than authenticity because you don't know if it's authentic you, yeah. But if you're, if you're somebody building a brand, as you build a brand, which is this representation that people are, are taking in, pulling away from whether the product is ethical, do you have an obligation, say, to present messages that are inclusive? Or, you know, is it okay to have a niche that you represent? 
that is your customer base. How do you walk that line? You know, I, I, I think that your, if your customer base is of a certain ilk and that's who you're catering towards, uh, you know, and you want to cater to that customer base and that's why you started the company. If you're able to stay in business, you know, then so be it. Uh, because the market is also going to tell you. So just like Nike stock went down 20%, but then went to new highs after that because they demonstrated that they were authentic and they stuck behind that commitment and earned a lot of respect from people, becomes business decisions too. So I think that being committed, wanting to do the right thing, the marketplace is going to also tell you. So if you want to risk offending people, which is why people stayed away from politics in the first place in marketing and commercials, that's one thing. Now it seems unavoidable. You know, yeah, it seems, yeah. and you, you have to sort of put what you stand for out there. You know, one of the first interviews on this podcast was with Chris Brogan, and it's exactly what he said is you sort of have to do it now. Just from a pragmatic business point of view, you almost risk losing customers if you don't express a position. Yeah, I think it's much more important to consumers now because it used to be that brands could tell you what they wanted to tell you, and that was about it. And you accepted it or not, or liked the product or not, but it was not a dialogue, it was a monologue originating from the brand. Well, now with social media, brands are held accountable. And the worst thing, going back to what I had said before, is violating the trust of your customer. Right. And so if they feel violated because you've done something that is out of step with their belief system, you're going to lose that customer. And of course, what's the, what's the most effective way to get a company to change policy is boycott them. You know, people don't really parse that very important question because it gets really complicated. Uh, yeah. That's why I think it's so interesting to sort of work it through and especially speaking with people who are in this business, just hearing how they perceive that line. Yeah. And again, I think it's, it's so shifting because in drawing that line, you know, uh, when you go to the bank that you bank with and you hand over the money to the teller, do you ask them, well, what political party are they affiliated with? Who are they going to vote for? No, you just want that service performed and you want to get in and out, hopefully with a smile on your face and quickly. And, and that, yeah, and that's, that's an interesting one for me. So for me personally, I know um, I use a bank that has had the same employees at the local branch for probably 30 years that I've been going there. Wow. And, and, and they know me and I know them and they're always super friendly. I don't love the company. I don't love the policies. I don't love the branding or any of that. So, I mean, I think that's an interesting question when we talk about elements of brand. It's not just the advertising. It's not just the TV commercials. There's this other piece of it, which is how the customer interacts with the product, right? Yeah. So let's talk about where, where does brands start? I would start with who do they think they are? What is it that they are really selling? And uh, what is the value they think that they're providing? And then I would talk to 
whether it's the other founders of the business, key executives in the business, and then I'd want to talk to some of their customers because, you know, you want to get the fundamental questions asked. And the reason I mentioned personal brand also is that your personal brand is your reputation. Right. Okay. And so with a brand or a personal brand, it's what they say after that person leaves the room. I love so, that. That's a that's such a such a simple way to think about it. It's what they say when that person or that you know business isn't isn't listening. That's right. Right. The fundamental questions: doing a kind of brand audit, if you will. So, if you think you stand for X, how is that demonstrated through what you do that you stand for X? What are the values that you have? You know. So, if everybody says, "Well, we believe in transparency," oh, okay, you believe in transparency. Define transparency, tell me what that is, and how do you then act on that belief? And so what, what you do, or what I do when I'm doing a brand on a, on a company or doing a brand positioning on a company, is I need to know these things about the company, and I also need to know how they are regarded by consumers, and what are they buying into. Amazon, as a brand, and as a shopping experience, other than their one click, it's kind of this crowded mess of everything. And why do people go to Amazon? Because it's delivered quick and it's it used to be cheaper. So their whole thing is based on, on the fact that they have a wide selection at a good price and we'll get it to you in a few hours, if not the next day. Not really, you know, it's a convenience proposition. It's not really, and it's a price proposition it's not a lifestyle proposition, right? Sears, you know, if you remember, do you remember Sears' slogan? No, what was their slogan? I don't remember, but I have heard people say that it, Sears was the Walmart, I mean the uh, Amazon of their day. That's right. It's Sears has everything. And it started yeah. off in the very early version of online. I'm saying that somewhat facetiously, it was catalogs. Right. That was really right. the first remote buying and you know and it's sears has everything and sears didn't really realize how the business climate and how that landscape was changing but it's really interesting also why businesses come and go and some that dominate for decades and then go away and why is that i mean why didn't polaroid dominate the instant photography business and move into digital like that Right. Because, they, you know, they thought they were in the business of selling proprietary film and cameras. That's not their business. Their business was instant gratification. So this is, this comes to kind of an essential question. It reflects why brand isn't just in terms of promoting the product, but it's really in terms of guiding the business in a way. So you said when you start, if you were to consult with a company about their brand, you start asking these questions and you want to dig into what they're actually selling. What kinds of questions do you ask? Because I think, you know, whether it's a personal brand or whether it's a company, a lot of the time people are selling something and they don't understand what they're really selling. How do you help them figure that out? Well, I, I ask them, what is it you're selling? And then of course I'll know what their product or service is. Right. And they would say, you know, shoes or, or hot dogs. And you know that that that's, you know, or hamburgers, but that's not really it. Right. So why should anyone buy yours over somebody else's? What is it that your unique offering is? What is it that's going to attract a consumer? 
So I think, again, just using Nike as an example, right? If you said to me, you know, what do you sell? I'm going to say sneakers. And then you're going to say, well, what makes them different? I'm going to say, oh, the padding and the grip and the technology. And really none of those are what Nike is selling. That's right. And nobody cares. Right. So how do you, you, know? how do you find that, that other thing? How do you dig into that? Well, the other thing, which is actually the part that excites me the most in terms of what I do, is the story. How do you craft the story out of what it is that you're doing? So, you know, there's a, a lot of companies that, that, you know, the big new thing of the last few years is these branding agencies. And, you know, so it's, let's use a Futura font, but we're going to do it italicized because that's modern and forward motion. It's like, and that's all horseshit. Not totally horseshit. It's the icing on the cake because the story of the brand is what resonates with the consumers. And so is Apple a great name? Uh, no. So some things become really good after the fact. And then they do all these case studies around it, but Apple, no, it's not a great name. Be became a great name. And so I think that first you have to decide on what your story is and really crafting that story. How do you find or create that story? That's the, that's the essence really, right? Yes, research. And that's researching it not just with the people in the company, but you also want to talk to people outside of the company and see, you know, you can't be the only one in love with your idea. You have to have other people in love with it. You remember when there was crystal Coke, uh, Coca-Cola went clear. Yes. And that was when Perrier became popular and bottled water was becoming popular. So this, so Coca-Cola thought, Oh, we're going to put out something that has that sense of healthy and clean. And so they left out the caramel coloring and uh, they did Crystal Coke, which bombed, huge bomb, right. you know, uh, because they were out of touch. Nobody goes to Coca-Cola because they think it's healthy. They go to Coca-Cola for what they think is its unique taste. And it's like a legacy brand, right? When you think that America is defined by carbonated sugar water and hamburgs, right. that's kind of sad. The but it, but incredible branding. I mean, what that's an incredible right. strength of brand. That's right. I mean, Coca-Cola is now the sixth most valuable brand in the world in terms of recognition, that sort of thing. Do you know what the top, the other five are? Uh, I know that Facebook, Nike, uh, all these companies, Google, all these companies that weren't around 15, wow. 20 years ago uh, have become those. in there? They're up there. Uh, they're, I think they're in the top 10. You know, you mentioned before, which is also key to a brand. And you mentioned the term consistency, which is an essential point. When you're driving across the country and you want a quick meal and you see those golden arches, you think you know what you're going to get. You're going to get a hamburger that you like and the French fries that you like and the soda that you like. And it doesn't make any difference where you are in the United States or at this point, even the world, you're going to get that. And that consistency is, is a critical part of a brand, of a successful brand and maintaining that consistency. Let's just mention there's some noise in the background. There's nothing we can do about it. They're doing some work on your building, but I, I think people can, can look past that. So if somebody is starting a business, when do they start thinking about brand? 
you know, with my business, uh, when I meet with young companies, the first they'll start off and saying, well, we're no Ralph Lauren, we're no, and it's, Ralph Lauren wasn't Ralph Lauren, you know, when he started. He was a guy selling ties. You should start thinking of your brand on day one because you need a compass in order to navigate successfully all the things you need to be doing. That doesn't mean that you can't iterate and pivot on what you're doing, but you need that compass from the beginning to have a clear sense of your direction, what kind of products that you would want to offer. So if you have a really successful brand, that is not only the most valuable asset you're going to have, you're going to be offered other opportunities. And then you have to decide, is it brand right? You know, so that's what Disney does. That's what Apple does. You know, it's interesting if you notice, although it is at this point over a billion dollar business, Apple doesn't make carriers for its iPhones or sleeves for its computers, uh, the laptops or anything like that. They concentrated fully on making the best tech they could and left all the accessories stuff to other manufacturers. I and love so this idea of brand as a compass. I think so many people think of brand as coming later in the process, but really what you're saying is brand is, is the essential, it, it, the essence almost of the, of the company and that that should guide every decision rather yes. than the other way around. That's right, absolutely. So, you, so it's never too early. Uh, you should start on day one as you're formulating your business idea. You have to ask those questions of yourself. Who's going to buy it? Why would they buy it? Where do I find those eyeballs and ears to hear about it? All of these kinds of things. Because otherwise, you know, you're just throwing stuff against a wall and seeing what sticks. And, you know, without that navigational principle, if you will, uh, you're not going to codify an idea nearly as strongly. So now I'm thinking about your work specifically, and your work is very visual. How do you define a brand in terms of, you know, visual? I know you said it's sort of like the, whether the font is, you know, chosen and whether it's italics, that's kind of the icing on the cake. Are there some essential visual principles to a brand? Well, I think that you want to have something that is recognizable. And if you look at the successful brands out there, they're not complicated graphics. Because what you want is, you know, the old picture's worth a thousand words. And when they found that out, this is a little interesting sidebar, is that ads used to be placed on the sides of buses and streetcars. And, uh, you know, they would go by quickly. Well, people couldn't read copy quickly. So things became more and more visual as more and more things were placed in front of us so that they could stand out and be distinctive because you weren't going to read a bunch of copy, right? So that's actually where the term pictures worth a thousand words came from. But, you know, it's interesting because if you, if you break down any brand, any successful brand, it's not like any of the solo components are like that, you know, crazy good that it, the light hits and it's like, wow. Before we finish up, I want to circle back to your book. There are interviews in here with so many incredible creatives 
who have built careers. How was that related to branding? Just about everybody in there has their own personal brand, so to speak. They have a reputation. That's what a personal brand is. And so, you know, the thing is that I wanted to communicate the idea that there's no one way to do anything. So there are over 50 really smart people, whether they're talking about creating a brand, whether they're talking about entrepreneurship, whether you should take on financing, whether it's storytelling, all of these things, like Susan Lacey, who's won, I think, 29 Emmy Awards and 11 Peabody Awards, a great filmmaker, talks about storytelling. And the example she gives is when she was doing the award-winning documentary she did on Steven Spielberg. How can I tell a story about him that isn't already known? What's my way in? All of the people in the book are presenting really interesting and valid points of view, sometimes 180 degrees apart. And so you have to find out what resonates with you. And one of the ways you do it with the book is at the end of each chapter, uh, I pose questions to you like I pose to them in class where you can begin to really define what resonates with you and what works for you. And a really cool feedback that I've gotten from people who I don't know who've written to me, who have bought the book is that they said, I ended up, I decided to do the exercises. I ended up doing them at the end of every chapter. I ended up with a journal that made me want to go back and reread the book because there are certain things that were so strong to me and so related to what I wanted to do. I thought, well, that's really cool. Yeah, so I, I have really enjoyed reading. Again, I want to be totally transparent here that I haven't finished it yet, but I've really enjoyed it. And I think all of the guests that I've had on this show were talking about all these elements of branding and marketing and promotion, but this is really a creative exercise. And I think seeing the examples in your book of how all these creative thinkers tackle problems, how they think about problems, how they think about life, it's, it's such a helpful tool for any creative person in their life to have that kind of Rolodex of examples. And it gets down to what is creativity and how do you foster it? And if we're going to be wrapping up about now, the thing about that I'd like to say is that I believe the, the definition of creativity is too narrow. And it's, people think about it in the very traditional ways that it's painting, it's filmmaking, it's writing, it's dance and all that. If you're an entrepreneur, you're creative. You're making something out of nothing from influences that have been around you and you're creating a business where one didn't exist before. That's a creative act. I firmly believe that there's probably more creativity required to execute an idea than there is to come up with an idea. Oh yeah, you know, uh, first day of class with my students, I'll say, so how many of you have been in a gallery or been in a store or seen something that's quite successful and you thought, oh, I could have done that and everybody raises their hand. And I said, what's the difference between you and them? And there's silence for a few seconds and then somebody will say sheepishly, they actually did it. I said, that's right. They did it. So you're absolutely right. The execution is what's critical. If it's just in your head, as they say, ideas are a dime a dozen, but how do you execute? And it's all in the execution. And uh, that you're, you're absolutely right.
That's the difference. And so it goes back to Nike, then just do it. That's a, that's a great way to wrap it up and bring things full circle. Everyone should buy and read your book. It's called Creative Careers, Making a Living with Your Ideas. Okay, before we close up, how do you foster creativity? Go to movies, read books, listen to music, go to museums, go to galleries, constantly be taking in the cultural influences that are around you, travel, talk to people, talk to people you disagree with, engage with people, go to uh, whether it's virtually with Zoom or whether you have a chance to go to meetups where you can meet people who are interested in the things you're interested in and have conversations with them. Be open to ideas and taking them in and a wide range of ideas because that's going to widen the palette that you can express yourself with and the ideas you may come up with. So fostering that means be a lifelong learner and stay curious. And uh, I will add the other place to check out is there's a Creative Careers website. It's acreativecareer.com and at acreativecareer on Instagram. And uh, I'm on LinkedIn, be Jeffrey Madoff. And I post things from my class. Your listeners might enjoy uh, seeing some of that stuff. But curiosity is a great propellant. And I've never met anybody who's creative who doesn't just have this voracious appetite for new knowledge. And, you know, when you and I met, and, and I like when you said that whether, the mic, whether you're recording or not, it's kind of the same conversation. You know, we ricochet all over the place because there's just so many ideas bubbling around. And I just love that, that pinball effect. When you think of this, but then you think of that, then you think of that, and then you think of that. And, you know, it's just a lot, a lot of fun. So this has been great. Thank you so much, Marion, for having me on. Well, thank you for making the time for this. I really appreciate it. Oh, we're recording or is this just a <laughs> This was the practice. Are you ready to start? All ready to go. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Grounded Content Podcast. Stop by madmotion.com slash grounded podcast. We're a new podcast, so I hope you'll help us get the word out. If you know someone who'd like the show, send them our way. And if you've enjoyed it, give us a positive review and hit subscribe. Thank you.